Cool. Well, thanks, Brandon. So, uh, like what Brandon said, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. So, if you're visiting, just want to say thanks for coming. Like, we're glad you're here. We're glad you could join us. So, I uh, hope you had a good Christmas. We were visiting my family. Uh, we're the only ones outside of, uh, so on my wife's side of the family and my side of the family, um, we're the only ones who don't live in like uh, a localized region. We're the outliers in both sides of the family, which means we have a tour day Midwest like during like uh, Christmas. So no one made us live here. We want to live here. So that's just, uh, life is hard. So um, speaking of hard, uh, I'm really hard to buy gifts for. So I basically got uh, gift cards to Menards for Christmas. So no big deal. I'm cool with that. Um, so speaking of gifts, uh, that's actually part of what the sermon is about this morning. So uh, the passage that I'm going to be preaching about is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to that passage. Um, you can open up on your phone if you want. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, so Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, which is basically the second half of the Bible. So if you want to check that out. So the passage this morning is about the Magi, so, which are sometimes called the wise men, and uh, they're traveling to visit Jesus. Now, some of you are pretty sharp, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, the wise men? Oh, good. That's a Christmas story. Did this guy get the memo that Christmas was last week? And I know you're pretty sharp, but actually I didn't miss the memo because we actually planned ahead, which was a Christmas miracle. And uh, the, yeah, so we coincided, like what Brandon, I think Brandon said this during the announcements, but like we coincided the start of Matthew with last week so that like that's why Brandon preached about uh, the birth of Jesus from Matthew 1 last week. So, hey, we planned ahead. Great job by us for once. And then, um, so we're excited about that. We're excited about going through Matthew um, over the foreseeable future and everything. So, so as we read about um, the Magi visiting Jesus, um, my hope is that we can read it and understand it through the lens of Scripture instead of necessarily thinking about it in terms of uh, Christmas stories and songs and uh, nativity scenes, pretty much. So, um, so what I'm going to do this morning is that I'm going to pray for us. Um, I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to explain the passage a little bit as we go along. And then I'm going to hone in on what this passage means, means in light of the king and the kingdom. And the reason for that is because the king and the kingdom, those are the two main themes in the book of Matthew. So, because like it's important to understand even a familiar story like this um, in the context of the overall point of the book of Matthew. Sounds good? So let's pray. So God... Um, yeah, I pray that you'll open my mouth when it should, uh, close it when it should as well. But and we just pray that like um, you'll make, we pray that your spirit will just make um, a big deal out of yourself here. So yeah, I pray that like um, this passage will really come alive and like um, to us by your spirit, so that um, we can just really see like what worshiping you looks like and like what the outworking of that is too. So we really need you for that. Um, it can't come through really a great sermon um, as much as it comes through like your spirit just like really moving in people. Yeah, so I need you, like we need you, and we love you. Amen. All right, so let's jump into the passage. So verse 1, chapter 2 uh, in Matthew, verse 1. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right, so let's take, a, let's take a big time out. There's a lot going on here, so just want to like set the scene, explain what's going on. 
Um, verse 1 says that this was after the time that Jesus was born. So Jesus is as old as two years old in this passage. So the Magi did not come and visit uh, Jesus on the night he was born. So, and as we'll see later on in this passage, Jesus is referred to as a child, not a baby. Uh, the Magi find him in a house, not a manger. And in a subsequent passage, which we won't get to today, um, the Magi said the star appeared two years earlier. So uh, my oldest daughter is in seventh grade, so when she was, I think when she was two years old, probably, like we were reading one of these like little uh, storybook Bibles, and there was uh, the part with like the Magi, and, uh, and they were visiting Jesus when it looked like he was standing and everything, and I was like, <laughs> what is with that? Like, somebody should have proofread this thing before it went to the publisher, okay? So, uh, but then I read the Bible a little bit more closely, and I was like, oh, maybe I'm the one with the problem here. So um, I should probably read the Bible instead of relining on nativity scenes, my bad. So, and this passage tells us, and this passage in Matthew tells us that this is during the time of King Herod. And King Herod was, he was brutal. Like, he, he murdered his wife. He murdered several of his sons. He murdered a bunch of his relatives. He was a lying, manipulative supervillain. And, like, man, he just truly found his identity in power and control. So he's just like your boss at work, only hopefully without the murdering part of it. And then, like, the Magi entered the scene. Now, first of all, um, contrary to the Christmas songs and the nativity scenes, um, there's nothing in this passage that says how many magi there were. You know, because people often think that there's three of them because there's three gifts, because, like, with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But, like, last week, like, I gave my wife three gifts for Christmas, and there's not three of me. So, like, clearly there's more than one, but, um, yeah, there's just, there's just really not clear of, like, how many there are. And who are the Magi, and where did they come from? Like, man, I was, I was leading a small group Bible study years ago, and, like, somebody asked a really good question in, um, uh, in the Bible study. They were like, well, who are the Magi? Like, where did they come from? I was, Apparently I didn't prepare enough, because I was just like, I don't know. Just, we should read that storybook Bible I read to my kid. Like, I don't know where they are. So, so some translation, translations call them wise men, but they're not wise in the way that the Bible uses that word. So that's why the NIV, which is the translation that we predominantly use here at River City, um, that's why the NIV calls them by their more formal name, Magi. And some Christmas songs call them kings, but they're not kings. So in short, the Magi were a group of people in the ancient world who were specialists in dream interpretation, astrological phenomenon, and they were typically worshipers of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Okay? So magi, way, way back in antiquity, they were typically guys who were just spiritually a little out there. Okay? I mean, this would be like Oprah, Mindy Kaling, and Keanu Reeves. And if they just rode into town, it's like, well, there they are. They're just kind of out there. Okay? And con- contrary to the Christmas song, they weren't from the Orient. Like, verse 1 just says that they were from the East, which is pretty vague. Um, and I was reading about this a couple weeks ago, but the general consensus is that they were probably from Babylon, which is east of Jerusalem, but it's not far east. But like, it, it was a ways away, that's for sure. But, like, yeah, they weren't, like, far from the Far East, like the Orient. And it's also commonly known that 
the neighboring nations around Israel, right there in the Middle East, um, such as Babylon and others, they all, had, they all had copies of Israel's sacred writings. In other words, the Old Testament. They all did. Okay? I don't know how that system worked. Like, they just kind of had stuff. I mean, like, they weren't dinking around on YouTube and things like that. Like, they just like, let's hoard the sacred writings of everybody. You know, they just had them. So, um, so these neighboring nations, like, all had magi, and those trippy, out-there mystical gurus, and they all read and knew the Old Testament really well. Like, so, and that's what contributed to there being a rumor among those neighboring nations that there was eventually going to be a great king born in the nation of Israel sometime. There's just this rumor going around in, at that time, you know? Kind of like how there's this constant, unsubstantiated rumor that there's going to be a red lobster built in Dubuque. You've all heard of this rumor. It's not true. Okay. So, so imagine if there was the Dubuque red lobster rumor, only way more pervasive and more credible. That's kind of like the rumor of the great in the ancient world about the great Jewish king that was going to be eventually born sometime in Israel. My mom... I was at my mom's house last week, and like, she was like, I went, on Christmas Eve, I went with my friends to Red Lobster. I was like, yeah, that's cool, because nothing says the birth of Christ like that. So anyway, but, and it was also commonly known back then that when there was something big going on in the stars, a great king had either died or been born. So for example, Julius Caesar, so he was, you know, like he was assassinated and everything. I think that's common knowledge. Anyway, so he was assassinated. And that was about 50 years before this, before Jesus was born. And uh, when Julius Caesar died, um, there was a comet that just happened to be in the sky for seven straight days. No, then it was known as Caesar's Comet. And um, as you can imagine, like, that really helped the astrology business back then. It's like, it just really did. So, um, so... In this passage here in Matthew, a few of the magi from neighboring nations who knew the Old Testament prophecies about the eventual birth of an Israelite Messiah king, plus they knew some other little prophecies like here and there in the Old Testament about there like being a star associated with something with that, um, associated with that king. So the magi saw the star, saw the star, and then they just put two and two together, and they were like, "Man, we just we should go to like check this out." because this is a big deal, you know. Um, does that make sense? All right, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod is no fool. Like, he knows something is going on here that might threaten his power and control. He knew what everyone else knew back then due to that big Caesar comet thing. Namely, that foreign dignitaries don't just show up like in your city looking for a king because they saw something in the sky. Like something might actually be going on here. And for Herod, that's a big problem. So the guy who murders everyone hatches a murderous plan. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. So they open up the book of Micah, or they just had it memorized, verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah. For out of you will, be, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When it says the chief priests in verse 4 there, those were the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. So they knew where the Messiah, the chosen one, the future king was going to be born because they just did this weirdo sword drill and they just like knew their Bible trivia, like, where's he going to be born? Got it. Like, they just opened up the book of Micah and the Old Testament, they knew it. And verse 3 indicates that everybody in Jerusalem knew that the Magi had rode, rode into town looking for the king of the Jews. The chief priests knew exactly what might be going on. That's fair to say. But they didn't care enough to actually go to Bethlehem and check things out for themselves. But they knew, like, I mean, but man, good job, guys. Like, you, get, you guys knew exactly where who was supposed to be born. <laughs> way, to, way to get that gold star for that trivia. We'll clap it out for that. Verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> Such a liar. Also notice that in verse 8, like it starts the reputi- repetition of the word child. So first of all, that indicates that he's not a baby. And second of all, like Matthew is trying to communicate the fragility and the vulnerability of, the, of Jesus, even as this child is just chock full of deity. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, and over the years, like, I've heard, uh, man, like really well-intentioned like writers, preachers, um, speakers just talk about how, man, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, like they're probably like this, this deep, unique significance for each of those things, like, and that's tied to the gospel. Like, um, that, that makes really good preaching material. <laughs> I, I think it's a little speculative, personally, um, if you think that, NBD, no big deal. Um, but, like, but that is no big deal, because the main thing to notice in verse 11 is that these trippy, pagan, mystical gurus come and worship a child in a dumpy, rural, hick town, and the primary expression of their worship is generosity. And it's also notable that God provides for the family of Jesus in this way, most likely because these gifts are going to allow them to financially be able to flee the country and live in Egypt for months, if not years, Uh, Because in the next passage, which we won't get to, Herod goes on this murdering rampage in Bethlehem after the Magi double-cross him. Speaking of which, verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
And lastly, before we hone in on a couple big picture themes with the king and the kingdom, um, if you put yourself in a first century mindset, this is a really scandalous story. It's not scandalous to us, but it was really scandalous to the first century reader, the original readers who read this. And that's because everywhere in the Old and New Testament, people who worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars and other gods and stuff like that, they're never the protagonists in the story. Like, they're always talked about, like, these people are bad news. Like, these are not the good guys in any story. Like, this is a really scandalous story to have, like, the Magi be doing this. And the point in me saying that is that no Jewish or Christian historian would just make this story up and then just put it in their sacred text unless it actually happened. Yeah, and one thing I really appreciated about the Bible is that it's consistently and strikingly honest when it comes to this kind of stuff. So let's jump into the big picture themes of this passage as it relates to the book of Matthew as a whole. So, because if you, if you go up 35,000 feet and you just get a landscape of Matthew, um, the big themes in the book, like I said, are the king and the kingdom. The king and the kingdom. So G, the king is Jesus, and the kingdom is his lordship over his redeemed people collectively and individually. So the king is Jesus, and the kingdom is his lordship over his redeemed people individually and collectively. So this story of the Magi isn't intended to be some random siloed story that's isolated from the larger storyline of Matthew. And it isn't meant to be typecast as a Christmas story. Because Matthew purposely included this story in like his narrative of Matthew about the life of Jesus to help us understand the king and the kingdom. So what does this story about the Magi say about the king and the kingdom? So it says a lot of stuff, but we're just going to hit on three things. So that I'm going to briefly talk about. So first is Israel's king is the king of the nations. Worshiping the king leads to generosity, and the king is worthy of seeking. So let's start with the first one. So Israel's king is the king of the nations. So Matthew goes to great lengths in his book to portray Jesus as embodying Israel's entire history. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we usually don't, like, usually uh, genealogies don't get, like, preached, <laughs> you know, um, at churches. But we did a couple weeks ago, and it was actually really good. It's on our podcast network, wherever that is online. Um, but, uh, yeah, when Brandon preached that, it's like, Jesus, it, like, is in the direct line of King David's family tree, which is a big deal because he is Israel's king. But, as Matthew will eventually recount in his book, the bulk of the Israelites would reject him as their king. So even as we saw it, like, in this story with the Magi, the priest, chief priests are the ones who knew the scriptures, but you don't see them chomping at the bit to go to Bethlehem and check and seek out the king. Instead, it's the thoroughly pagan astrologers who read the scriptures correctly and seek out Jesus to worship him as king. 
And when the Magi bow down to Jesus, the God King, they implicitly signal what Matthew explicitly makes clear later in his book, that Jesus is not just Israel's king, but their king. He possesses all authority over all nations. Jesus is not just Israel's king, but he's the king of everywhere, of all people. In other words, Jesus is not meant to be worshipped by... Jesus is meant to be worshipped by all people and not just a certain group of people. And because that's true, um, that's why the message of the gospel, when I say that, like, you know, Jesus lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live, he died the death that we were supposed to die, and we put our life-changing foundational faith in him. That's why the message of the gospel isn't loaded with cultural superiority or some kind of, like, weirdo cultural imperialism. You know? So, for example, like what Brandon talked about this morning when he was doing announcements, if you were paying attention during announcements. So, like, as a church, um, we're about growing in the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches. So, uh, we make a big deal out of church planting here at River City. So, and the reason why we want to plant churches in the surrounding communities around Dubuque and along 151 isn't so that we can advance our brand or... Um, or just condescendingly think, like, well, you know, there's good things float downstream, so we just want to, like, bless our awesomeness, expand our awesomeness to smaller, less fortunate areas or something like that. Um, no, we, we want to plant churches because Jesus is king. He's a king over all people, so that we eventually want to plant churches in both targeted and opportunistic places where God would give us favor, and even here in Dubuque, because Jesus is king. And there's no sense of superiority or imperialism with that because Jesus is king of all people, including those from Dubuque and Galena and Makokoda and even Magi who are just traveling around. And just like those pagan Magi who are seeking out Jesus, there are plenty of people in towns and cities that, like in the Dubuque area that desperately need to worship King Jesus. So that's why church planting isn't about us. It's about the king and the kingdom. So, for example, um, we talked about this a little bit, like, in, uh, if you came to our exciting uh, annual meeting in November. Um, but, like, uh, that's why in 2019, we're just really excited and looking forward to partnering with a couple church plants in the region that are going to be happening. So, first one, um, Michael McKittrick. So, he is uh, planting Eastside Church in Madison um, with the Evangelical Free Church, which we're a part of, and the X29 Church Planning Network, which we're also a part of as well. So, um, so as you can, yeah, as you can predict, like it's on the east side of Madison. So now Brandon, um, who's the regular preacher here, so Michael has been Brandon's preaching coach for the last two to three years. So if God has used Brandon's preaching in any kind of way to help you grow in the gospel, like Michael is the big reason that for that. Like, God's really used him in that regard. So, um, we're just excited about, like, what he's doing and, like, um, and just, like, partnering with him with that. So, the second church plant is Tim, Tim Kimberly. Um, he's a friend of mine um, who is in the, who's going to be planting in the metropolis of Collins, Iowa, population 400. So, um, now, Tim is about 40 years old, and he's been uh, the pastor of leadership development and, like, church planting, I'm the pastor of church planting and like training church planters at this 5,000-person church in Oklahoma City, and he grew up in Collins, Iowa. And uh, so eventually he was just like, you know, he told um, the other pastors and elders, and he's like, I just really think that like God is calling me to plant. And uh, they're like, 
which urban center are you going to be sent to? And he's like, I think Collins, Iowa. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it was just really exciting. So like, um, so a bunch of the pastors and elders from that church, like they went up to Collins, Iowa and like just to check things out and like, um, yeah, I went with them there and like, uh, besides shooting squirrels and things like that, because that's just what you do there. Um, um, We did that for sure. But then, uh, man, Tim just knows everybody in that town. So, like, uh, I think it was the day before I got there, they said they were, like, just driving along because, like, Tim went to high school with everybody in that little town and everything. So, like, so like uh, they were just driving by, and, like, he just stopped, and, like, because there was a friend of his that hadn't, he hadn't seen from since high school, and so he stopped there, and then he just got out, and he was like, hey, I've seen you since high school. What are you doing here? I'm moving here. Why are you moving here? I'm going to be starting a church. And he's like, that sounds great because, uh, you know, and this guy is not a follower of Jesus yet and like so and he was just like man that sounds really exciting like man um i would love to be a part of that would that be okay if i came and i invited a bunch of people and he's like yeah that's totally cool you can totally do that so it just seems like god is just like i'm just looking forward to seeing like how god is going to be planting the gospel and then just like having a church be birthed out of that so anyway so we've been talking about those plants a little bit on sunday mornings every once in a while here in 2018 we're going to be doing that a little bit more like here in 2019 as well so so, and the point is that Israel's king is the king of the nations, and that's ultimately why we value church planting. So it's not about us, it's about the king. Secondly, worshiping the king leads to generosity. Worshiping the king leads to generosity. So this is the kind of stuff we talk about whenever generosity gets mentioned naturally in the text we're preaching, but generosity is about the gospel. It's about the gospel. Because if you don't understand the gospel, then generosity, it just becomes something that's rooted in like um, guilt or obligation or giving in order to get. And the problem with those motivations when it comes to generosity is because they're not rooted in the gospel. So if you read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 9, the author gives a lot of practical insight about financial generosity, which is cool. Like, I'm into practicalities. Um, but the linchpin of those chapters is when, instead of the author guilting people to death about their finances, he takes them straight to the gospel. So chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And what that means is that Jesus was spiritually rich while we were spiritually poor. And Jesus generously gave his spiritual riches to us, and he took our spiritual poverty. In other words, like your salvation is based on generosity. And that's why generosity is at the heart of the gospel. That's why even when we see magi giving generously, that generosity is an outworking of their worship. They see that the Almighty God has generously given the earth its king, so the natural outworking of their worship is to reflect God's generosity to them with generosity of their own. So that's why worshiping the king always leads to generosity in one way or another. And that's because the king has been generous to us. 
That's why we always say that if you give financially, for example, to River City, we're thankful for that. But even more importantly, we want you to be motivated properly by just really reflecting on the gospel and being, having it be an outworking of the gospel. And just like the Magi, we want you to be motivated by looking at the king and worshiping him and being captivated by his generosity towards you. And in that way, you're motivated by grace instead of guilt and obligation. And just like the Magi, worshiping the king naturally leads to generosity. And lastly, third, third thing, the king is worthy of seeking. The king is worthy of seeking. The Magi traveled a long way to seek out King Jesus. Can you even imagine the kind of complex and rigorous travel arrangements that it took to, to get there in the first century? I mean, if it wasn't like jumping on Travelocity and getting some tickets and watching, getting somebody to watch your dog for a few days, you know? Like, the, the Magi really had to go out of their way to seek King Jesus. So the new year is coming up in a couple days. Um, I'm not a big resolution guy. I don't know, maybe you are. Um, I don't think resolutions are bad or anything. Um, I mean, they actually, like, they can be a really good thing because, I mean, people often use them as a fork in the road time to just kind of, like, evaluate and reflect and, like, that kind of stuff, So, which is good. Um, I would argue that from a spiritual perspective, it's probably more healthy and sustainable to do that on a regular basis and not just when the calendar tells you to do so. But, um, but it's a good thing. Um, but my question for you is that when 2019 rolls around, what's it going to look like for you to go out of your way to seek Jesus? What's it going to look like for you to go out of your way to seek Jesus? And make no mistake about it, Jesus is the hero of this story. Like, he's the one who gets worshipped, and therefore, he's the one that we orbit our lives around, because he is who he is, and he's the only provider of meaningful identity that we're actually and desperately longing for, whether we realize it or not. Like, Jesus is the hero of the story. That being said, I mean, let's look at the example of the Magi in this passage, because going out of their way to seek Jesus was totally and completely worth it. Is going out of your way to seek him worth it? And not to steal material from a future sermon that we'll eventually get to in Matthew, but it's not a coincidence that Jesus told a parable about this in Matthew 13. So skip ahead 11 chapters. This will be up on the screen. So this is Jesus when he's about 30 years old. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. So this is a really short and powerful story about what true conversion looks like, according to Jesus. The treasure in this passage is Jesus himself. Like, he's the king of the kingdom, the kingdom is all about the king, and he's the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. And when someone finds Jesus, 
That's like someone finding treasure hidden in a field. And that treasure is worth infinitely more than any of their other treasures. So in their joy, which is the opposite of religiously and begrudgingly going through the motions, they give up everything they have to buy that field. So true conversion, according to Jesus, is about exchanging one set of treasures for another. So the question is, like, what are your treasures that you need to exchange for Jesus? What are your treasures that you need to exchange for Jesus? Is it your quest for comfort at all costs? Is it your desire for security and certainty? Is it your just insatiable thirst for like approval and affirmation? So the biblical word that I'm describing is like um, a word that the Bible uses called repentance. That's when we put aside whatever it is you treasure in your heart and you authentically put your foundational basement level hope in Jesus because he's your treasure. So what treasures do you need to let go of in your heart and life so that you can have Jesus as your treasure? king is worthy of seeking and going completely out of your way to do so. And that's why you need to go to him and worship him. And just like the magi, you'll find him waiting for you. Seeking and responding to him like that, um, that's one of the reasons why we do communion here on a regular basis. So communion is a symbolic way of responding to him with that kind of repentant faith, that posture of our heart that's just like really bows before him authentically. So the bread in communion, like the bread represents his body, the drink represents his blood, and those things were broken and shed for you. Like he lived the life that we were supposed to live and he died the death that we were supposed to die. He was generous to you in that way so that we can worship him just like the Magi did. I'd encourage you to pray before you take communion. Um, Talk to him authentically and don't make it a religious exercise where you just kind of go through the motions. Like, go out of your way to seek him on a heart level. Talk to him. Surrender to him. And like, and use your time for that. So, and just remember, like, God even used pagan astrologers to show us the infinite value of seeking him and worshiping him. And he showed in that story that he doesn't turn away anyone who authentically and truly bows to him. So there's two communion stations in the back right there. You take the bread, you dip it in the juice, you take it that way. So the worship team is going to be coming on up, and they're going to be playing three songs. And you can take communion whenever you are spiritually ready on your own, like any time during those three songs. So, And you can seek him and respond to him in that way. So let's pray. So God, we're really thankful that like you, you give us the opportunity to seek you, and like it's out of your grace and out of your love that you allow us to seek you freely. And um, yeah, we're just really thankful that um, you had the pagan astrologers just like um, come and seek you and just like give that as an example. But we know that you're the ultimate example because like 
and you are worthy of worship, worship and just following as well. So I pray you'll just empower us collectively and individually to do so. And we love you. Amen.